Gresham College presents Goethe the Musician and His Influence on German Song by Professor Richard Stokes of the Royal Academy of Music. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Barbara Anderson, and I welcome you all to Gresham College. Um, we're absolutely thrilled to bits to be part of the City of London Festival again this year. In a moment, I'll hand you over to their director, Ian Ritchie. But first, I would just like to say it's great to see you all here. If, if anybody is not on our mailing list and is interested in next year's program, do just write your name and address down, give it to us, and we'll send you the program, which is coming off the presses as we speak. After tonight's lecture, there is a drinks reception, which is in the headmaster's study, so-called because it was once. Um, and you're all warmly invited to that. And you will have an opportunity to, to buy a book by Professor Stokes, which is a superb production. Um, and we've got it at a special bargain price of £10 off a special City of London Festival price. It's absolutely superb. There'll be some there that you can have a look at. Um, we should say you buy a, buy a book first and then you get the drink. <laughs> um, but... Um, do join us afterwards, and thank you very much for coming, Mr. Ritchie. Barbara, thank you very much, and um, this is very much a, a mutual appreciation moment because the relationship we have with Gresham College is one that we really treasure as a festival. Um, we go to a lot of trouble in planning the festival to be full of interesting ideas and threads and strands. And we can't explain these fully and intellectually and brilliantly um, purely in the context of a programme or a performance of music. And these lectures are so interesting and helpful because they highlight and amplify and take our knowledge a lot further and really contribute in a very important way to the City of London Festival. So it's, it's a very um, important relationship for us. So thank you very much indeed. Um, this is the first day of the City of London Festival. So here we are at the opening. And there's lots and lots to um, enjoy, I hope, for you all. Um, not only um, a further series of talks, uh, of lectures, uh, in, indeed, on Monday, um, Alain de Botton, the um, Swiss um, writer and expert on architecture, he will actually talk about the beauty of architecture. And this is partly because we have this um, Swiss strand running through the festival, and he will be very enlightening um, on, on, on Monday. But one of the tiring figures um, in romantic literature, probably the great forefather um, about whom Richard will speak in relation to, to music, was Goethe. And we have taken uh, Goethe as a kind of inspiration and indeed as a poet um, for many aspects of the festival. There'll be no fewer than six recitals during the festival which actually feature his, um, his leader, his songs. Um, every Wednesday, in one of the Wren churches, you'll find at six o'clock a recital um, that hopefully you'll enjoy. There's also a, a couple of lunchtime concerts 
and also a recital by Patricia Rosario of songs from the East-West Divan, um, which um, are all in here. You're very welcome to take one of these programs with you, um, and it's all in there. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Richard Stokes, who is absolutely the expert on, on leader and on Goethe and the relationship with, with music. Um, he's translated thousands of songs, and he is actually the best translator of them. I mean, if you can get one of his translations, you're, you're away. You understand what the song's about and also the whole context of it. And we're very pleased indeed that on this opening evening of the festival, uh, we have Richard Stokes to introduce us to Goethe and Goethe's relationship with music. Could I ask how many of you have German? It just helps. Um, if you don't, don't worry, uh, because when I quote in German, and I quote in German because I find it tantalizing to actually use the words that Schubert used and Goethe used, but I have translated them um, on your sheep. So if I say one, that implies that I'm about to read it in German, and you can either follow it in German or read the translation um, beneath. Um, I shall speak for about half an hour as a broad, as a general introduction, and then play six songs that we'll be hearing in the course of the festival um, and discussing them in some detail. And if you feel in the mood, you can try and guess the singer. <clears throat> it's become fashionable to label Goethe unmusical for a variety of reasons. In April 1816, he failed to acknowledge Schubert's gift of 16 Goethe leader, settings of his own poems, which included such masterpieces as Gretchen und Spinrade, El König, Der König in Thule, Wanderes Nachtlied, Der Fischer. He didn't warm to Beethoven when they met in 1812. He preferred Celta and Reichhardt to composers that posterity have deemed rather greater. And he wrote in his autobiography, Dichtung und Wahrheit, number one, Das Auge war vor allen anderen das Organ, womit ich die Welt erfasste. It was through the visual above all other senses that I comprehended the world. A statement which seems to be confirmed by his indefatigable study of natural phenomena, colors, stones, minerals, um, his delight in art and architecture. He wrote um, much, many, many books, many, many articles on that. And in seeing, Lünkreuss's line at the end of Faust, number two, zum Sehen geboren, zum Schauen bestellt, has an unmistakable autobiographical ring. It is also, incidentally, one of the greatest songs in the repertoire, set by Karl Löwe. Who sings it? Nobody. Fischer Dieskau used to. If you can get hold of it, I think it's available. Karl Löwe, it's Lünkreuss's third song from Faust, one of the great, great songs. Zum Sehen geboren, zum Schauen bestellt. So Goethe was above all an Augenmensch, a visual being. He was also intensely musical from his earliest days in Frankfurt. His father brought a giraffe, which means a giraffe, but I don't refer to the animal. A giraffe was a harpsichord for 60 gulden in 1769. He played the lute and flute 
and occasionally made music with friends. There's an amusing passage in Dichtung und Wahrheit. If you can get your hands on that, it's a very entertaining autobiography. Um, and this passage describes his father playing the lute, die er länger stimmte, als er darauf spielte. That he spent more time in tuning than he did playing. Um, his mother, who was more artistic, played the piano and sang German songs and arias uh, with great enthusiasm. Goethe and his sister Cornelia started piano lessons in 1763, and although the pieces he learned were probably very simple, dances, marches, and songs, he would have been able to supply his own thorough bass, since the scores of the period rarely contained written-out harmonies. It was during this early Frankfurt period that his interest in opera was kindled. He attended many performances of French and Italian operas, and in his early teens even wrote a libretto, La Sposa Rapita, that he later burned. But the overwhelming musical experience of Goethe's youth was a visit to Frankfurt in 1763 of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Goethe was smitten and remained smitten for the rest of his life. While studying at Strasbourg University, he began to learn the cello, number three. Ich kann das Violoncello spielen, aber nicht stimmen. So he probably got someone else to do that for him. In Alsace, he gathered folk songs, roaming the countryside like an anterior Kodai or Bartok. A new world of music was thus opened up to him, folk song with its alte Melodien wie sie Gott erschaffen, with the old melodies just as God had created them. As he wrote to Herder, who had originally aroused his interest in the Volkslied. And it was to Herder that he sent the Zwölf Lieder des Volkes, the first collection of German Volkslieder a long time before the Gnaden Wunderhorn to be published and a pioneering effort by Goethe in a field that blossomed during the Romantic period. His concept, incidentally, of what a song ought to be, strophic and with a simple melody, was almost certainly influenced by his interest in folk song. Back in Frankfurt as a lawyer, he became increasingly interested in the relationship between music and poetry. He greatly admired Gluck and requested him to set his own poetry. Gluck declined. Goethe was also keen to find composers to set the Singspieler, the libretti that he was writing. He persuaded the name has long since vanished, Johann André, to write the music for Erwin and Elmira. And though André's music has long been forgotten, Mozart's setting of a poem from that work, you know what it is? Das Feilchen, um, is of course in every singer's repertoire. So is Ihr verblüht Süßerosen, that wonderful song from Grieg's Opus 48. And so it is with these other libretti. Um, although these settings by André, Kaiser, and a woman, Corona Schröter, have faded, the works have been rescued from oblivion by Schubert, for example. His Elkönig, which I think you probably all know, comes from a Singspiel, which was first performed in Weimar in 1776, called Die Fischerin, where it's sung by a woman, not a man's song. Well, it is a man's song, but it was originally sung by a woman. Uh, so Schubert rescued that, and Liebe schwärmt auf allen Wegen, 
Für noch ein Singspiel, Claudine von Villabella. Wolf, es war ein fauler Schäfer, that wonderful song about laziness, from Jeri und Beteli, another libretto. Brahms, es rauscht das Wasser, that duet, from Jeri uh, und um, Beteli again. And Serenade von Claudine von Villabella, and so on. His ambitions, ambitions, I think, as a librettist, came to naught because he didn't find a composer of genius. But these works, the ones I've just mentioned, and he wrote about some 15 libretti or more, are delightful pieces. As Hugo von Hoffmannsthal, um, Strauss's librettist, wrote in an introduction to a volume of Goethe's Singspiele, Der Geist der Poesie weht auch hier unmittelbar uns an. The spirit of poetry uh, wafts at us here too. And one is left with the feeling that had Goethe collaborated with composers of the stature, the caliber of Mozart and Richard Strauss, these Singspiele might now be part of the operatic repertoire. Goethe's contribution to Weimar, where he was summoned, a very important date, in 1775 by the 18-year-old Duke of Weimar, Karl August, um, his contribution was huge. Though Weimar's musical horizons were narrow by cosmopolitan standards, there was intellectual stimulus in abundance. Anna Amalia, the dowager duchess, had chosen Wieland as tutor for her son. And it was Wieland who had proposed making Weimar the cultural, artistic capital of the German-speaking world. The importation of Goethe in 1775 was the second step towards that goal. And it was Goethe who recommended that Herder be appointed the following year as court chaplain. Goethe's association with drama and music began early on at Weimar and assumed many forms. He himself is extraordinary this. He was impresario, he was author, he was director, he was business manager and actor. In 1783, he founded an Italian ensemble called the Bellomische Theatergesellschaft. Ich bin immer für die Opera Buffa der Italiener, he said. I've always been for Opera Buffa supported, been for these works. And one of the reasons for undertaking the Italian journey when he set out in 1786 was to discover more about Italian music. The journal is peppered with Goethe's comments on folk song, which he experienced in Venice and Rome, on church music, which he heard often in the Sistine Chapel, and opera buffa, particularly by Cimarosa, and on opera seria, which he described, number four, as an ungeheuer, ohne Lebenskraft und Saft. And some of us might concur. That's really um, Rossini's opera seria, for example. Goethe was director of the Hoftheater from 1791 to 1817 and mounted productions by an astonishing variety of composers, including Mozart, Gluck, Beethoven, Dittersdorf, Paisiello, Cimarosa, Cherubini, Boildieu, Payer, Spontini, and others. In particular, he championed the operas of Mozart when it was not entirely fashionable so to do. During his directorship, Mozart was performed on no fewer than 310 evenings. Figaro 20 times, 
die Entführung aus dem Serai 49 times, Don Giovanni 68 und die Zauberflöte 82. So fascinated was he by the magic flute that he wrote a continuation of it. Someone ought to set it to music. Um, all of Shikaneda's characters reappear. Tamino, Tamina are married, but their child has been confined to a coffin by the Königin der Nacht, by her magic. The coffin, however, is continually carried around by bearers in the young pair's apartment, for it's long been prophesied, so lang ihr wandelt, lebt das Kind. The child shall live as long as you move, or on the move as long as you wander. The bearer's loyalty is finally rewarded, and the child recovers, and the libretto ends in celebration. Redemption through striving seems to be the idea. Music was to Goethe an essential part of life, and above all, perhaps, it brought solace. It's music, if you remember, in Faust Part One, which saves Faust from suicide. It's music which soothes Werther in his bleakest moments. It's music which restores both Tasso and Wilhelm Meister. The vast majority of vocal music in Goethe's time was sacred, and he was convinced that religion could not dispense with music, since it awoke in man higher feelings, what he called a Vorgeschmack der Seligkeit, a foretaste of rapture, of bliss. Among his favorite sacred works were Bach chorales, Mozart and Haydn masses, and Handel's Messiah. Except he didn't call him Handel, the German word is Händel, Händel's Messiah. His own musical soiree always began with sacred music, and Goethe's only attempt at composition was significantly a setting of a religious text. He himself was nothing more than a competent player, but he was convinced that music could only have a beneficial effect on humanity. Or as he put it in a letter to David Pleyel, dated August 1822, I think these are wonderful words with a wonderful rhythm. Probably doesn't come over in the translation. Number five. Wer Musik nicht liebt, verdient nicht ein Mensch genannt zu werden. Wer sie nur liebt, ist erst ein halber Mensch. Wer sie aber treibt, ist ein ganzer Mensch. Now, eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of great men and women, though not 100% reliable, are always tantalizing. We would, of course, all love to see Goethe here on stage and check for ourselves whether Tischbein got it right in that painting of Goethe in the Campagna. But we can't, and there are no recordings of Goethe's voice either. We have to rely, therefore, on his contemporaries. And I've chosen a little-known passage in which the singer, Eduard Genast, tells of the time he was invited to sing before Goethe. And he quotes Goethe's actual words. I'll read them in German so you can send a better chance of, of capturing the essence, even just the rhythms. But the translation is beneath. So picture it. This rather arrogant singer, Genast, goes to Goethe and sings Jäger's Abendlied in the setting by Reichardt. How does Goethe react? Wahrscheinlich wollte Goethe sich überzeugen, ob ich Fortschritte im Vortrag, der bei ihm die Hauptsache war, gemacht habe. Ich sang ihm zuerst 
jähiges Abendlied von Reichhardt komponiert. Er saß dabei im Lehnstuhl und bedeckte sich mit der Hand die Augen. Gegen Ende des Liedes sprang er auf und rief, das Lied singst du schlecht. Dann ging er vor sich hinsummend eine Weile im Zimmer auf und ab und fuhr dann fort, indem er vor mich hintrat und mich mit seinen wunderschönen Augen anblitzte. Der erste Vers sowie der dritte müssen markig mit einer Art Wildheit vorgetragen werden. Der zweite und vierte weiche, denn da tritt eine andere Empfindung ein. Siehst du so, indem er scharf markierte, daram, 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 daram. Und dabei bezeichnete er zugleich mit beiden Armen auf- und abfahrend das Tempo und sang dies daram in einem tiefen Tone. Ich wusste nun, was er wollte. Und auf sein Verlangen wiederholte ich das Lied. Er war zufrieden und sagte, so ist es besser. Nach und nach wird es dir schon klar werden, wie man solche Strophenlieder vorzutragen hat. Now, strophic songs are amongst the most difficult songs to sing. Strophic songs are songs where the music for each verse is identical. And in my work at the Royal Academy of Music, I can certainly tell you that... Um, That is one of the most interesting things, to try and get a singer to, to vary tone, to vary mood, to vary weight, to vary tempo. The Goethe was unmusical. I mean, it's simply, simply untenable. Here he is giving a very good lesson in musical declamation. But I think several clean things are also clear from this account, not least that Herr Genast wished to inform posterity of his own talent. More importantly, though, it shows Goethe's approach to leader singing. Given that throughout his writings on music, and especially in the voluminous Zelte correspondence, he stresses that in Lieder the accompaniment should usually be subservient to the poem, that there should be no word painting in the music, and that songs should be strophic and not through, through composed. Genast's eyewitness account of this rehearsal shows us the importance that Goethe attached to a singer's ability to vary his delivery and explore nuances. In other words, to relish the words and interpret the poem. No other writer, I think, except perhaps Shakespeare, has had such a profound influence on song. Goethe attracted composers from a bewildering array of different nations. And it's to a great extent, I think this is true, because of their settings of his poems and plays, that his name, Goethe's name, is now known throughout the world. Not sure we would know about Goethe's great poetry if it wasn't for Schubert, Brahms, Wolf, Mendelssohn, etc. There is a musicality about his verse that has always attracted composers. Even philosophical poems, like Gesang der Geister über den Wassern, tempted them. Schubert, for example, said it twice. Are, are we hearing it in the... Yeah. Wonderful poem, and Schubert, it's philosophical, like Grenzen der Menschheit, but he sets it to extraordinary music. Whether his poetry was life-affirming, and it almost always is, contrast Heine, who had such problems with women that he's a divided self, all his poems are unrequited, Dichte Liebe, not one happy song, but one perhaps. Um, Goethe's almost always life-affirming. Whether his 
poetry then was life-affirming and exultant, anguished, introspective, religious or irreverent, whether he was writing wise epigrams or wicked satire, occasional or nonsense verse, or pornography, wonderful poems, the, the, the Venetian epigrams. If you're into that sort of thing, find that interesting. Uh, the Penguin uh, Book of Goethe has a lot of them. Um, he was always writing musical poetry that attracted song composers, just as the candle flame in his own poem, Selige Sehnsucht, attracted the moth. He could imitate the great classical writers of Greece and Rome, the Persian lyrics of Hafiz, and the simplicity of folk song. Like Picasso, he was always renewing himself and reinventing himself right into old age. And it's not just the variety of his work that's set by composers that astonishes. It's also the cosmopolitan enormity of the response. Verdi and Alla Piccola from Italy, McDowell and Ives from America, Viana da Mota from Portugal, Berlioz and Massenet from France, Tomaszek from Czechoslovakia, Mussorgsky and Tchaikovsky from Russia, Schoek from Switzerland, Grieg from Norway, and so on and so on. The list could be extended to cover countries from all over the globe. But although Goethe has been prodigiously set, his own views, as I've hinted, on word setting were always surprisingly conservative. In opera, he insisted that the libretto should always serve the music, music more important, something that is abundantly clear in his letters to the composers, such as Kaiser and Reichardt. Um, in 1787, for example, he wrote to Kaiser that he had learned in Italy to subordinate poetry to music, die Poesie der Musik zu subordinieren. In matters of song, however, which is what we're really concerned with this evening, he was adamant that music should merely serve the poetry, which is why perhaps he failed to acknowledge Schubert's gift in April 1816 of the 16 settings of which I've spoken. Many reasons have been adduced for the great man's failure to respond to these wonderful songs. Were they actually performed? Did he open the parcel? And if he did, did he concentrate? Was the performance adequate? In the letter, which I'll read in a moment, that he sent, an accompanying letter, he, he asked his friend Josef von Spaun um, to say that the pianist must not lack facility or expression. If they were played, perhaps no such pianist could be found. Or if he was found, perhaps he botched or rolled those octave triplets in Elkönig. Or did the songs arrive at a time when Goethe was quite simply unusually busy? After all, he enjoyed a huge international reputation and received a daily deluge of letters, hundreds of them. Did the sycophantic tone of Spaun's letter displease him? Or was he simply in a bad mood? Fact is that he didn't reply. The most likely explanation, however, for Goethe's silence must be sought elsewhere. He was not unmusical, as is transparently obvious. But his concept of what constituted a song was profoundly different from Schubert's. Isolated in Weimar, not in Berlin, he relied very much on Karl Friedrich Zelter, who wrote wonderful songs, by the way, pre-Schubert songs, to keep him informed about the musical world of Berlin and beyond. And Zelter was essentially a conservative. In a letter to him, 
dated 2nd of May 1820, Goethe expounds his belief that the accompaniment of a song should not seek to illustrate the imagery of a poem. Number seven. It's a very interesting quote. This is the Zelta. Die reinste und höchste Malerei in der Musik ist die, welche du auch ausübst. Es kommt darauf an, den Hörer in die Stimmung zu versetzen, welche das Gedicht angibt. Töne durch Töne zu malen, zu donnern, zu schmettern, zu plätschern und zu patschen, ist detestabel. And in the Annals of 1801, he makes it clear that through composed songs lose their lyrical character by what he calls a falscher Teilnahme am Einzelnen, a misplaced concern with detail. Nor are these isolated examples. Throughout his writings on Lieder, he makes it queer, uh, clear that the accompaniment should be subservient to the poem. Schubert's rarely is. And the misplaced concern with detail is everywhere apparent. And we can all of us quote 20, 30, 40 examples in Schubert's music of how that is so. Here are just a few. The chirping crick, crickets in the Einsame. The blind boy's tapping stick in Colli Kibber's Der Blinde Knabe. The spinning wheel of Gretchen am Schwinrade. The brook throughout the Schöne Müllerin. The midnight tolling of St. Mark's Bell in Gondelfader the call of the nightingale in Ganymede, the post horn from the post, the wheeling crow of the Krea, the cuckoo in the prelude, prelude to Frühlingstraum, the galloping quavers of Anschwager Kronos, all this would have drawn from Goethe a withering detestable. Let's, before we listen to this wonderful music, let's look more closely at the package of 16 songs and the accompanying letter that was sent to Goethe in April 1816. It was sent by Josef von Spaun, a lawyer, always reliable, by the way, when we're dealing with Schubertiana, thoroughly reliable, responsible, respectable. His, what he writes, one guesses, is, is, is true, whereas other people um, possibly rely on their imagination too much. This is the letter. How would Goethe have reacted? Number eight. Euer Exzellenz. Der Unterzeichnete wagt es, Euer Exzellenz durch gegenwärtige Zeilen einige Augenblicke ihrer so kostbaren Zeit zu rauben und nur die Hoffnung, dass beiliegende Liedersammlung Euer Exzellenz vielleicht keine ganz unlieber Gabe sein dürfte, kann ihn vor sich selbst seine großen Freiheit wegen entschuldigen. Now that is remarkably sycophantic. But that, on the other hand, was how artists wrote letters to great men in those days. If you look at them, they tend to be in that vein. So perhaps Goethe was not put off by the sycophancy. I think if he had opened the songs, he would have liked some of them, the strophic ones. Nähe des Geliebten, some of you might know. Der Fischer, der König in Thule, and above all, perhaps, Heidenröslein. These are strophic songs to simple melody. Others, such as Gretchen am Spinrade, Elkönig and Meerestille, I think would almost certainly have drawn from him that withering epithet, Detestable. It's not surprising that Goethe, who enjoyed this international reputation, did not have the time to concentrate on Schubert's letter and enclosure, when he might 
well have had hundreds, two, three hundred letters, as I've said, uh, to reply to that day. And as he explained to Eckermann, this, the man he had conversations with at the end of his life, on the 21st of January, 1827, number 10, I think this is a very good reason why Goethe didn't reply. This is Goethe, uninvited really, just in conversation, informally with Eckermann, number 10. Ich habe große Herren gekannt, denen man viel zusendete. Diese machten sich gewisse Formulare und Redensarten, womit sie jedes erwiderten, und so schrieben sie Briefe zu Hunderten, die sich alle gleich und alle Phrase waren. In mir aber lag dieses nie. Wenn ich nicht jemanden etwas Besonderes und Gehöriges sagen konnte, wie es in der jedesmaligen Sache lag, so schrieb ich lieber gar nicht. Oberflächliche Redensarten hielt ich für unwürdig. Und so ist es denn gekommen, dass ich manchem wackeren Manne, dem ich gerne geschrieben hätte, nicht antworten konnte. Nine years later, poor old Schubert tried it again. He wrote once more to Goethe. Three songs this time. In May 1825, he sent him through his publisher, Anton Diabelli, two copies of three songs printed on satinated paper with gold borders, and Schwager Kronos, and Mignon, and Ganymede. The parcel arrived, and Goethe's secretary, a man named C.F. John, entered in the diary, presumably at Goethe's dictation, Sendung von Schubert, number 10, Sendung von Schubert aus Wien. Actually, he didn't even say Schubert, he said Schubert, misspelled him, aus Wien, von meinen Lieden, Kompositionen. But Goethe, just to finish, at long last, he did learn to appreciate Schubert's songs. In 1830, two years before he died, as an old man, he was born in 49, 1749, the great man of German letters heard the great singer Wilhelmine Schröne de Vrient give a performance of El König, at the end of which he kissed her on the brow, saying, I heard the piece once before, and it did not appeal. But sung like that, the whole, world, the whole work becomes a visible picture. I've chosen six songs that, um, they're all in the program, Ian's wonderful program, and the first one I want to discuss is Gretchen am Spinrade. Not the first on your sheet, I think. I think it's the second. And we won't start just yet, uh, Mohammed. Just, I'll just give an introduction. It sets a scene from Faust. At this stage in the play, Gretchen has recently met Faust, is smitten, and returns to her room and sits down at the spinning wheel and expresses her rapture in what has become one of the most anthologized love poems in the German language. The very shape of the poem on the page suggests unbridled passion, short lines. The obsessive repetitions, just look at them. Starts, meine Ruhe ist hin, mein Herz ist schwer, ich finde sie nimmer und nimmer mehr. And then that is repeated, that by the way is not Goethe, that is Schubert. Stanza four, he repeats it. And then the miracle begins, stanza five. The stress falls on ihm. Nach ihm nur schaue ich zum Fenster hinaus. Nach ihm nur 
gehe ich aus dem Haus. And then begins the ecstatic elaboration of Faust's physical appearance. Just look at these words and listen to them. Sein hoher Gang, sein edle Gestalt, seines Mundes Lächeln, seine Augen Gewalt und seiner Rede Zauberfluss, sein Händedruck und Ach, sein Kuss. Look at that obsessive repetition of the personal pronoun. Sein, 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 hammering in her head. First sein is masculine nominative. Second sein, seine, seine edle Gestalt, is feminine nominative. Seines Mundes Lächeln is genitive masculine. Seine Augen Gewalt is genitive plural. Und seine Rede Zauberfluss is genitive singular. And look how the lines are end stopped. Sein hoher Gang cranking up her passion, sein hoher Gang, sein edle Gestalt, Komma, seines Mundes Lächeln, Komma, seine Augen Gewalt, Komma, and then, magically, the enjambement, und seiner Rede Zauberfluss, no Komma, it flows over on the very word Fluss, sein Händedruck und ach, Komma, sein Kuss. Well, that is a miracle, that Komma, because what does it compel her to do? It compels her to reflect on that first kiss. You can't read, you have to stop. Seine Rede, Zauberfluss, sein Händedruck und ach, sein Kuss. And then it becomes unequivocally, unequivocally erotic. Mein Busen drängt sich nach ihm hin. My breast yearns for him. The original was mein Schoß, Gott. My womb yearns for him. Ach, Dürfte ich fassen und halten ihn und küssen ihn, so wie ich wollt, an seinen Küssen vergehen sollt. Vergehen, perish, die, 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 metaphysical poetry, orgasm, sexual climax. Although she's not saying that, that is the subliminally what she's thinking of. How Schubert, age 17, said this, I have no idea. I guess Schubert was bisexual, this By this stage, I don't think he had had any relationships with women. Therese Grob came later. The setting goes from D minor, and then it shifts to E minor, and then it shifts to F, getting increased all the time in intensity, then back to D minor, and then at the moment of the kiss, it, the pitch rises ecstatically to a dissonant B flat, and then it starts again. Mohammed, could we have the first recording? Thank you. Perhaps you'd like to guess who it is.
17. If you look at the date on the top there, 19th of October 1814, and there is a sense in which you could say, you could divide German leader into two, BG and AG, before Goethe and after Goethe. This is Schubert's first Goethe setting, and it's in a sense, although lots of wonderful leader had already been composed, particularly by Beethoven, Mozart, Reichard, Selter, Haydn, um, the psychological importance of the accompaniment here, I think, creates something new. Very important date. Next poem is um, the second Wandersnachtlied. Um, written, most interestingly, scribbled, um, ungestated on the wall of the, um, the Duke Karl August, his hunting lodge, up in the mountains above Ilmenau by Weimar. It's on the Gickelhahn. And a few hours having written this, just scribbled it. By the way, Goethe in Dichtung und Wahrheit tells us how he used to wake up in the middle of the night and scribble down poems that had come to him. The one he quotes is Der Musensohn, Feltenwald zu schweifen. And he used, he said, in the middle of the night, because he was almost somnambulistic, he used a pencil instead of a quill pen why do you think that might be? So it's quieter. I mean, the, 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 the scratching of the quill pen would, would have roused him from his reverie, from his somnambulistic um, state. So this extraordinary piece was written um, on the walls, wooden walls of a hut. Um, there's a very fetching, terribly moving tale of it. Well, two little anecdotes. One, two... Um, about three hours having written it, he wrote to Charlotte von Stein, his mistress, already had children of her own, just in English here. I spent the night on the Gickelhahn, this is the, the mountain, to get away from the turmoil of the town and the incorrigible confusion of humankind. The sky is utterly clear, and I walk to enjoy the sunset. The view is immense, but simple. And, most tantalizing of all, Years, years later, on the 27th of August, 1831, the eve of his death, he visited the hut again in the company of Berg Inspector Meyer, who in 1855 gave the following retrospective description of their visit. Goethe read the few lines and tears ran down his cheeks. Very slowly, he took the snow-white handkerchief from his dark brown coat dried his tears, and spoke in a gentle, sad voice, Yes, only wait. Soon you too will be at rest. Said nothing for half a minute, looked once more through the window into the dark spruce wood and turned to me, saying, Right, let's move on. Well, believe that or not, 
He makes a wonderful story. Just have a quick look at the poem. Hugo Wolf, by the way, often used to suggest to his singers that before they stood on stage and sang, they should recite the poem. I must say, when I coach singers, and even famous ones, if you ask them just to recite the poem, the whole edifice crumbles. You need the music to sustain it if you haven't got German. And as a listener, you can almost always tell. These are astonishing words, I think. Über allem Gipfeln ist Ruhe. Look at that word, Ruhe, peace. We've all sung Silent Night. How does it end? Sleep in heavenly peace. And if we're all a choir, how does it sometimes end if it's rather amateurish? Sleep in heavenly peace. Schlaf in himmlische Ruhe. It's just so quiet. In allen Wipfeln spürest du kaum einen Hauch. Die Vöglein schweigen im Walde. Warte nur. Balde ruhst du auch. It's, on one level, it's a description of a mountain. But if you look at it more closely, he goes from the large magnificence über allen Gipfeln, then his gaze goes down in allen Wipfeln, the treetops, spürest du kaum einen Hauch, and then you go to the wood, die Vöglein schweigen im Walde. And how is a wood connected with death? coffin. So, sudden realization that his time is up. Balde ruhest du auch. Schubert destroys the poem in a sense. He repeats that, but it's completely magical and you can't explain why. Mohammed, could we have über allen Gipfeln um, probably louder than the last one?
perhaps no prizes because indeed that was at the peak of his powers, Dietrich Fischer Dieskal in 1961 with Joel Moore. The first one, by the way, was who? Janet Baker. An incredible playing by Moore there, the Sfortsandi in Gretchen am Spinrade, when the wheel gets faster and faster. So few pianists bring that out. Um, we turn to Auf dem See. Do you have that there? Um, a very important poem. You remember I mentioned that Goethe in 1775 was invited by the Duke Karl August to go to Weimar to be such an important figure there, a cultural figure. And he writes this poem on Lake Zurich, on Lake Zurich, again spontaneously. First of all, he called it, not after him, at all, he called it 15th of January 1775 on Lake Zurich. And then when he came to revise his poems, he changed it. On one level, it is about rowing. I was going to read it once, if I'd like to follow it. He's in the center of Lake Zürich. Und frischer Nahrung, neues Blut, saug ich aus freier Welt. Wie ist Natur so hold und gut, die mich am Busen hält? Die Welle wieget unseren Kahn im Rudertakt hinauf. Und Berge wolkig Himmel an begegnen unserem Lauf. Aug, mein Aug, was singst du nieder? Goldener Träumer kommt hier wieder? Weg, du Traum, so gold du bist, hier auch lieb und Leben ist. Auf der Welle blinken tausend schwebende Sterne, weiche Nebel trinken rings die türmende Ferne, Morgenwind umflügelt die beschattete Bucht und im See bespiegelt sich die reifende Frucht. And you don't end the poem on the ripening fruit, well, you might do, but it is symbolic. And what you've got here is Goethe's pondering the great step he's about to take to go to Weimar. What is the rhythm of the first stanza? Und frische Nahrung, neues Blut, saug ich aus freier Welt. That is, that's an iambic, yeah? That is, um, you, you can't read it. Und frische Nahrung, neues Blut. So it's, it's short, long. And so what is it? It's the pull of the oars. And in the song we're about to hear, you should be able to hear the spume on the oars on this wonderful word, frisch. Und frisch, und frische Nahrung, neues Blut, saug ich aus freier Welt. I suck from the world around me. The original was even more daring and unpoetic. Ich saug an meiner Nabelschnur nun Nahrung aus der Welt. I suck from my umbilical cord, nourishment from the world around me. So what he's on about here is to describe Rousseau-like how he's at one with nature. Can you notice, what do you notice about the, the symbolism of the words? They're to do with suckling in childhood. Zauk, umbilical cord in the original. Busen, breast. Vegan, cradle childhood. And then the rhythm changes to a trochee. Instead of short, long, auk mein auk. So what does he do? He asks questions. He's growing up. He's got to make a decision to go to Weimar or not. Auk mein auk, was singst du nieder? Goldene Träumer kommt hier wieder? Weg du Traum, so gold du bist, hier auch lieb und leben ist. 
He had just broken off his relationship with Lily Schönemann. And he's going to leave her and go to Weimar. And then in the last stanza, where are we? If we started at noon, and then, as an allegory of human life, we reach night, auf der Welle blinken tausend schwebende Sterne, where are we by the end of the poem? The morning, Morgenwind. So he's been out all day, all night, pondering. And that end, of course, it could mean the ripening fruit, the orange trees, the lemon trees, but there's a deeper symbolical import here. A wonderful song. Um, thank you, Mohammed.
post-lude, you hear him rowing to shore. So a poem about destiny, about two paths in a wood, which way shall I go? To quote the Robert Frost. Um, anyone get a singer? Very good. Felicity Lott and Graham Johnson. Um, turn now, please, to Meere Stille. We might be running out of time. Does anyone have the time? Yes, I'll stop just in a minute. Um, uh, Meere Stille for you. Um, well, it was written um, after a voyage um, during his Italian journey where he was crossing from Naples to Sicily. And you probably have heard of Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage. Uh, two poems are written, Meere Stille, and then Glückliche Fahrt, you know, in Mendelssohn's setting, perhaps, or, or Beethoven's. Um, this is an extraordinary, extraordinary song. It's a song of genius. The idea, first of all, the poem, just follow it. Um, Tiefe Stille herrscht im Wasser. Ohne, what's the rhythm? Tiefe Stille. It's trochaic. It doesn't move. Why doesn't it move? Because there's no wind. Tiefe Stille herrscht im Wasser. Ohne Regung ruht das Meer und bekümmert sieht der Schiffer glatte Fläche ringsumher. Keine Luft von keiner Seite, Todesstille fürchterlich, in der ungeheuren Weide reget keine Welle sich. And in that sound, talk about music, in der ungeheuren Weite, in this monstrous expanse. Somehow you see the entire horizon in that one noise. A bit like in Tristan und Isolde, remember Act 3, Kurvenal, um, when asked, siehst du ein Schiff auf, dem, auf der See? Elliot quotes it in the wasteland, back comes the answer, öd und leer das Meer. Desolate and empty the sea. Leer das Meer. And you see the whole horizon as you do here in the Heuren. Thank you, Mohammed. Quite loud, I think, because it's very slow, very quiet. And he sets it to 32 semi-breeves. What an idea.
is that? We've heard of that. That's Janet again, Janet Baker. Do we have time for one more, or ought I draw to a close? Yes? Um, just do Ken Studer, I was going to permit, or it's too long. Ken Studer's Lund, perhaps the greatest lyric poem in the German language, certainly the most famous. You need to know that this has come from Wilhelm Meister. Mignon, 13 year old girl, has been abducted from Italy by, believe it or not, a troop of German acrobats. Um, and she is longing for her homeland. Kennst du das Land, wo die Zitronen blühen, in dunklen Laub die Goldorangen glühen? Wonderful idea of Goethe's to use what, what we call a Fremdwort, a foreign word. Zitrone is not a German word. Orange, it's called Mignon, sorry. It's called Mignon. So he uses these foreign words. She's talking about her foreign land. Ein sanfter Wind von blauen Himmel weht. And so the first stanza begins with a generality. Kennst du das Land? And then second stanza with the increased chromaticism in Wolf's setting. You get the specifics. Kennst du das Haus where she used to live? Then in the third verse, Kennst du den Berg? The mountains, the mountain pass that leads to my homeland. There is so much to admire here. Look at the refrain each time. Dahin, dahin möchte ich mit dir. The enjambement again. She can't stop herself. I want to go with you, oh mein geliebter ziehen. Second verse. Dahin, dahin möchte ich mit dir, oh mein beschützer ziehen. And wonderfully, the last verse. Dahin, dahin geht unser Weg. No longer a condition. Not, I want to go with you, but that's where our path lies. O Vater, lass uns ziehen. And can you appreciate this open vowel? Geliebter closed, beschützer closed, and suddenly, Vater. Stanza two, look at that wonderful assonance. Fourth line, und Marmorbilder stehen und sehen dich an, threateningly. And so we could go on, but it, 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 the whole thing is a Steigerung. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an increased atmosphere from, from strophe to strophe. And by the way, the second verse, Was hat man dir, du armes Kind, getan? That could well be Goethe being autobiographical. What have they done to you in Weimar, where he was losing his spontaneity, being bogged down in administrative duties? So you can read it. written just before he went on the Italian Ischerheiser. Okay, last one, how to end there. But this is one of the, the great songs of the world. Some commentators feel that it's too complex for a girl of 13 to sing, but so what? Thank you. Moment.
the chromaticism in the piano climbing key. Oh, <laughs> 
Well, you see from the list below, many other composers have said that. Beethoven, um, Schubert, Schumann, and that's only, I just printed a, a few of them there, but there are over a hundred um, settings of that song. If you're interested in, in that sort of thing, do, do have a browse in, in the book, um, and thank you for your attention. Okay. <coughs> <coughs> For all information, please visit our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.